You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them at patreon.com forward slash The Whole Church Podcast. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first that is mark 10 29 through 31 from the christian standard bible uh g-man what stands out to you the most in this passage so for context i think it's helpful to know that this passage comes right after jesus has discussed some of the costliness of following him and and peter feeling feeling a little astounded about that says uh jesus i just want you to know we left everything to follow you and so i want to know if there's if there's going to be something for us uh and i love that the way that jesus responds to peter doesn't deny that something is given up in following him Uh, right he doesn't say to peter peter you idiot you didn't give up a thing so quit whining and go stand over by thaddeus he makes this acknowledgement that there is really something something lost in being his disciple, that things are in fact given up in following him. And yet what he promises us is that we will receive in return something that's so much better than everything that we could possibly lose, that in fact counterintuitively the best ways to find flourishing as human beings, as followers of Jesus, is not in pursuing the most obvious pathways to flourishing that we might see modeled in the world around us, but that actually it's in giving things up for Jesus that we find ourselves encountering so much more than we could possibly have dared to dream up for ourselves. Right. Yeah. We actually talked about it at work a little bit today. My friend D'Amico was like, hey, man, what would you do if God said to you one night, woke you up out of your sleep, hey, take your son up to the mountain, kill him for me? I guess I thought we were tight I thought you know I still believe in you and all that then we talked about Job and that's kind of the whole you know (laughs) that's what Job is is you know give it up give it up don't care how good it is it's not yours anymore then it gets back of course I'm I'm grateful that we have some additional biblical clarity (laughs) since the moment of Abraham and Isaac to make it clear that Jesus is probably not still going around telling people to kill their (laughs) children. And yet I I absolutely resonate with the the intensity of that image to suggest that even the things that feel most crucial, most valuable to us might be the very things that Jesus is asking us to give up. Uh, It it reminds me of, uh, uh, there's a, there's a uh, commentary on the book of Matthew. I believe it's Robert Gundry's commentary. And he's talking about the passage where Jesus tells the rich young ruler to, to sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor. And he's talking about how some people will, re- uh, will read that passage and sort of try to make themselves feel better by saying, you know, Jesus didn't call everybody to sell all their possessions. So surely he's not calling me to do that. And, and what Gundry says is, uh, uh, the, the fact that Jesus did not tell all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of person to whom Jesus would issue that command. 
Um, right. In other words, Jesus is remarkably good at locating that thing that we have said to ourselves. Okay, Jesus, this far, but no farther than that. Uh, he's remarkably good at locating that thing and then calling us to to be willing to give up even that very thing that feels most sort of crucial to us. Hmm. Yeah. Hey guys, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. Your probably your favorite church unity podcast i am one of your co-hosts joshua knoll you might not care that much about that but we're here with the greatest co-host of all time the one and only tj tiberius juan blackwell give it up thank you hi (laughs) hello and we're here with a very special guest um the one and only gregory cole um author of single gay christian uh hey man welcome to the show Hey, thanks for having me. What a pleasure to join you. I am so excited to talk to you, to talk about your book, and to talk about a very sensitive and sometimes controversial topic. Um, You could probably guess what it is by the title of his book. Um, We are going to be talking about Single Gay Christian, the book, and we're going to be discussing where the line of unity is possible concerning the topic of homosexuality, same-sex relations, etc. So, if you're a little sensitive to this topic or whatever, you know what we're talking about now. So, there you are. Be prepared. Um, Yeah. Guys, do us a favor. Before we get into this, go ahead and hit pause. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just do the little five-star. Say, hey, these guys are great. You don't even need to hear past this to know that this is great. So, there you go. Um, And with that... Uh, Greg, we like to start every show with my favorite form of unity, um, which is silliness, because it's just pretty much impossible to really argue, to really be divisive when you're being as silly as I'm about to be. And we start off with a silly question. TJ and I are going to answer this one first, let you think about it, give you a little bit of time. TJ, you're up first. If you could teach a pig any one trick... What would it be? So it could be any trick. Any trick. And any field. You know, I would we say can, that's up to TJ, but you are TJ, so. Can, can we assume the pig gets the prerequisite knowledge required to be able to perform the trick? Y- yes. The only thing okay. we cannot assume is that his physiological stuff will change. He still does not have opposable thumbs. Okay, we can work with that. Uh, I want to teach a pig the cobra maneuver. Uh, so basically, it is a fighter jet maneuver where uh, not a lot of planes can do this, but uh, you basically decelerate the plane at such a high velocity that you go backwards and a little upside down and return to your normal flight path. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Only planes that can control their thrust vectoring can do it. Very cool. How Very awesome. Flying a plane. Uh, prosthetics. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm going to be extremely more boring than TJ. I'm going to give possibly the most boring answer to a silly question anyone has ever given. Backflip? I'm teaching my pig how to heal. I simply want the pig to follow me around. That's it. That's all I want him to do. Yeah. You can so, do uh, that. So, Greg, any one trick you could teach a pig, what would it be? 
So I would need to Google the physiology of pig mouths because I'm not entirely sure that this is possible. <laughs> but if I could teach a pig to speak human language, I don't even particularly care which language.、Um, honestly, it would be great fun if it was a language that not a lot of people speak, so there could be something exciting about communicating with the pig. Uh, but uh, yes, if if the if pigs have mouths that are capable of forming human speech, which I ha- have my doubts about, I would love to teach the pig、hmm. to speak or something close to it. Fascinating. So one way we have found that really helps establish Christian unity is to hear one another's story.、Uh, I know you cover your story extensively in your book, but for those who haven't read it yet, could you give us just a snapshot of your testimony? Yeah,、uh, so I grew up in the church,、uh, which means that I grew up going to youth group, and you know sometimes they would <laughs> split the boys and the girls apart, which invariably meant that we were going to talk about sex, and they would get the boys together and they'd be like, "Look, boys, we know what you're going through. You want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it." And this was when I discovered that I was remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women.、Uh, like I was so good at it that I started to believe I was like the holiest twelve-year-old in the world because I was like, they're telling me there's this thing all the young men are going through, and I'm not going through. I've been spared. I think it's just because I love Jesus so much.、Uh, and and then eventually, you know, it took me a little while, but I did eventually realize that I did in fact have. An experience of sexuality. It just wasn't the one that I had been sort of trained and braced by my Christian community to expect.、Um, and so, very quickly, I went from feeling like the holiest twelve-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible twelve-year-old in the world. The the one who was so awful that nobody had bothered to warn me that I might exist.、Um, as I as I wrestled with that question of what it meant for me as somebody who was exclusively attracted to the same sex. To to be a follower of Jesus, whether that was even possible,、um, there were there were kind of two narratives that I that I knew existed somewhere in Christian community.、Um, there was on the on the one hand、uh, an ex-gay narrative that said, if you love Jesus, like the thing you need to do is figure out what has gone wrong in your upbringing. Um, that has caused you to be gay. You need to try to fix those things. Prayer; those things will make you straight.、Um, Uh, and、uh, on the other hand, there was、uh, a, a gay affirming narrative that said, if you revisit the biblical texts,、um, you'll actually come to the conclusion that same-sex marriage is an option for followers of Jesus.、Um, and and so I I sort of tested both of those narratives. I, I spent more time initially working my way through the ex-gay narrative、uh, because that was the one that was more prevalent in my church community by far. And Uh, in that in that attempt,、uh, I, I because the etiological explanations, the things that were supposed to have made me gay, didn't really seem to make a lot of sense in my life. For instance, they said you should have a distant father and an overbearing mother. And I looked at my parents, and I was like, my parents are great.、Um, those of you listening to this podcast probably do not have the luxury of meeting my parents, alas. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. My parents are great.、Um, But I figured, you know, prayer I can do. Loving Jesus was already on the agenda,、uh, so I sort of waited and hoped and prayed to be straight、uh, over the course of middle school and high school and college.、Uh, and in a variety of ways, it became increasingly clear to me、uh, that me becoming more attracted to the opposite sex and becoming less attracted to the same sex did not seem to be high on Jesus's agenda.、Um, 
that I was, in fact, growing in my faith. I was falling more deeply in love with Jesus, but those things were not making me any straighter. And as I wrestled with that, then I began to investigate more carefully this other narrative that I had heard about, the gay affirming narrative, um, did some deep dives into scripture uh, and found myself very viscerally sympathetic to people who land uh, in, a, in a camp that affirms same-sex marriage for followers of Jesus, and yet not quite convinced by those arguments. Um, and so as somebody who was not becoming straighter on the one hand, but who really didn't see a path forward um, for same-sex marriage for me on the other, uh, concluded that I was probably called to be single. And when I, when I initially reached that conclusion, there was a lot of shame that came along with that for me. Uh, and I had great intentions of just keeping that part of my life a secret from everyone until I, until I died. The, the grand vision I had for my future was that I would just stuff it down. I would talk to nobody about it. And then I would die with everyone thinking I was straight, which clearly has worked out very well for me at this point in my life. Um, but uh, over, over the course of time, it, it became increasingly clear to me that perhaps God desired for me to do more with my experience of sexuality than simply pretend that I was straight and pretend that I just happened to be single because I was waiting for the right girl to come along. Uh, and so somewhat accidentally, uh, I, I wrote down a bunch of my thoughts and they coalesced into a book and then I published the book. And here we are on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I personally, I hold up your book as one of three pillars of the conversation for me. Um, if I were to just tell someone who wants a full picture of the kind of debate that's happening, um, because I, I think it's always good to read the books that tell someone's story. So you're not just thinking of it intellectually. I feel like you, you need to have that personal part of it um so i i would usually go to uh jackie hill perry's book um i can't remember the name of that at the top of gay my head girl, good god uh gay girl good god yeah fantastic book um and she is one of the ex-gay um where she felt same-sex attraction and came out the other side as she tells it um and then uh, Matthew Vines, uh, God and the Gay Christian. So that's um, that's sort of the big, what I think of as the big book for that side. My copy of his book is more marked up than any of my others because there's so much that I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's got it. And then I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and it's a lot of markings in that book. And then there is Single Gay Christian. By Gregory Cole, and it is a traditional. What I would say, you have a traditional Orthodox view, but you handle how that looks, acting it out differently than, say, Jackie Hill Perry. Um, so, what the, the views you've already thrown out? What these views are? We've already kind of talked about it a little bit. What about let's let's go to Matthew Vine's book. What about that argument, the gay affirming argument? do you find most attractive and most unconvincing? Why, why did it not convince you? 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, to this conversation. And in part, I love the, I love the books that you picked because in the last six months or so, I have been with both of those authors and had conversation with them. Uh, so I, I think uh, give them my email. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of good conversation to be had. Uh, in the case of both Matthew's book specifically and, uh, uh, same-sex marriage affirming arguments more generally. Um, I would say, well, first of all, I would want to say this, that there are a lot of different ways of arriving theologically at a view that affirms same-sex marriage. Um, hmm. uh, and so there are some, uh, including including Matthew's approach, including uh, the approach of somebody like Karen Keene, uh, who's a, a really thoughtful scholar, um, these approaches that are very closely tied to the biblical text um, uh, and, and that read it in ways I don't find altogether compelling, which we'll talk about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that, uh, that model a desire to a desire to follow where the text leads, even though I think they get wrong where the text leads. There are also some arguments that affirm same sex marriage that in their treatment of scripture, more or less say, well, yeah, scripture is saying that same-sex marriage is not not the best thing, but we need to sort of move past where scripture is. Um, and or, you know, you know, scripture says a lot of crap. So we just need to, you know, we're we're better people than that now. Um, yeah, we eat selfish now. It's fine. <laughs> so um, I hate those arguments. <laughs> so I yeah, so uh so I want to recognize that like not all arguments that affirm same-sex marriage are created equal. Uh, and I would say on the flip side, not all arguments that do not affirm same-sex marriage are created equal either, right? There are people who conclude that same-sex marriage is not God's best because they've really thoughtfully engaged the text. They've wrestled with the counter-arguments. Um, they've, they've deeply acknowledged how, how our approach needs to shape a whole bunch of issues. Um, uh, and there are people whose argument against same-sex marriage basically boils down to like, eh, gay people are kind of icky. Um, and, and gay people are icky is also not a not a biblical argument. Man, that's um, so, awful. So, yeah. so I just want I just want to acknowledge up front that again there are there are lots of different ways of arriving in either camp. And in some way, in some ways, I'm more interested in the approach that somebody takes. Um, that's where I would rather start the conversation rather than starting with the question of where did you land? Do I agree with you or disagree? I would rather first say how are we having this question? What is our belief? about uh, how we should approach scripture? What is our belief about the, the lordship of Jesus in our lives? Does Jesus actually have the right, as we were talking about earlier, does Jesus have the right to call us to things that feel counterintuitive and weird and bad? Or have we created Jesus in the image of ourselves and given him permission to call us to certain things, but not to other things? Are we basically looking for a Jesus who just affirms everything that we already wanted to do in our lives anyway, way, a Jesus who we can sort of tack onto our American dream. Um, yeah. To kind of so, throw the, the hermeneutical terms on it. So we're talking about like exegesis, getting the meaning out of the text versus eisegesis. What do I want the text to say kind of deal? Yes. Yes. An important distinction. And in some cases, I mean, in some cases you have people who are not even bothering to eisegete, who are basically just saying like, screw scripture. I'm going to do my own thing and yeah. call it Christian. And I would say, you know, at that point we have, we have moved far beyond what I can recognize as the Christianity of Jesus um, so I would rather I would rather have the conversation there. Um, 
getting getting back to um, to, to Matthew's argument in particular and other arguments that I think do the best job of, of staying pretty close to the biblical text. Um, some things that I, that I find uh, compelling about that approach. Um, one is how much it considers the humanity of the people involved in the conversation. Um, I think a big temptation uh, in, among certain people who do a lot of theology is to try to do our theology in abstraction, um, to just talk about ideas without recognizing the way those abstract ideas actually play out on the ground in the lives of real people who really need to encounter the goodness of God. Um, and, and so it seems to me really wise to have theological conversation in a way that keeps actually the actual real lives of people as a part of our discourse. Um, uh, that seems to me kind of the way that Jesus talks about scripture when he invokes scripture uh, in the gospels, um, that he, he doesn't just theorize the Old Testament in abstraction, but he names things in the Old Testament in the context that he's in, in the real lives of the people that he's interacting with. And he demonstrates how those things apply to the, to the current moment in a way that is enfleshed and embodied and not just abstract. Um, Another thing uh, that I would say um, strikes me as, as sort of a, a positive and potentially compelling note about some arguments that affirm same-sex marriage is that I think uh, they, they rightly point out certain places where the text is not necessarily as clear as we have sometimes imagined it to be. Um, and I think the best example of this comes in our analysis of the Greek word arsenakoitai, um, uh -huh. which shows up in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and then in 1 Timothy 2 or 1. Uh, I, I like to think I quote the Bible like Jesus does. It is written in there someplace. Um, but yeah, you've got, a, you've got a 1 Corinthians reference. You've got a 1 Timothy reference. Um, uh, those are the two places that the word arsenakoitai appears. Um, and arsenakoitai is an interesting Greek word. It's a compound word that's formed from two parts, the word arsen, which means male, and the word koiti, which means bed. Um, but interestingly, um, these two appearances of the word in Paul's letters are the first places anywhere in the whole corpus of Greek writings that we have that word appearing. So we don't actually have prior to Paul's use, we don't really we don't have any sense at all of what that word necessarily means. Now, you could just look at the two parts, male bed and be like a man better. Yeah, it's clearly a gay person. You know, um, well, for one thing, I think it's important to distinguish is the text talking about sexual orientation? No, clearly not, because sexual orientation is a much more recent idea. So is the text talking about all same sex sexual behavior? Is that what that compound word means? You could you could speculate that. But it's always dangerous to take the parts of a word and just speculate what the whole word means, um, right? So, for instance, if we could look at the English poets who praise the butterfly and be like, butterfly, butterfly. It's like a winged dairy product, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so we need to be cautious anytime we approach um, anytime we approach compound words that don't have kind of a prior history to help us understand what they mean. Now, in the case of arsenakoitai, um, uh, if we're trying to speculate about what that word means, one really important thing to note is that the Septuagint, which is the mm -hmm. Greek translation of the Old Testament that's, that's being read, that's circulating in the time that Paul's writing, 
the Septuagint uh, rendering of the, Le- the uh, verse in Leviticus chapter 18 that makes mention of same-sex sexual behavior uses those same words, uh, arsene and koiti, to refer to maleness and sexual activity. Even though the Greek language at that time has other words to talk about maleness, it has other words to talk about sexual activity. And so if you're trying to speculate, hey, if Paul is actually coining this new word, where is he maybe getting the getting the building blocks for the word? If you're trying to speculate about that, it seems like a pretty solid speculation to say Paul is drawing from the language of Leviticus 18 as it would be known and understood by his readers um, mm-hmm. and using that to form his new word. Anyway, um, uh, so, so, so that's a place where, where I think that – Folks who make arguments that affirm same-sex marriage are right in pointing out the complexity of the thing, uh, yeah. right? And 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 you can't just end the conversation by saying like it's complex, so pick whatever you want, right? I don't think anybody <laughs> who's thoughtful yeah. is saying that. I think what we need to say is acknowledging the complexity. How then do we move forward and try to seek out what the what the best possible answer of the text is? Um, so again, I I want to uh, I want to affirm and cheer on insofar as I see um, folks doing that on any side of the conversation, that I think that's the right way to approach the conversation, even if we land in different places as far as our conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Matthew Vine does a good job of steel meaning that argument, even though I disagree with his final conclusion where he did point out, here's the strengths to the other side. And I was like, okay, all right, cool. Glad you got there. (laughs) Um, But again, you know, we end up disagreeing. So why is it you say that that you aren't completely persuaded? Yeah, I think for me, there there were a couple things uh, that that didn't quite seem to ring to ring true as I as I read uh, that argument uh, from Matthew and as I've read other similar arguments. Um, one of them is. Uh, I have yet to read an argument that really satisfactorily answers for me the question of why does Jesus seem to be comfortable reaffirming uh, Old Testament sexual ethics that do include this this clearer prohibition of same-sex sexual activity in a way that insofar as any scholar can understand, it seems that Jesus' hearers would have heard him use a word like the Greek word porneia, which means sexual immorality. It's where we get our English word pornography from. When Jesus says that porneia is not the best for followers of Jesus, it seems that his first century hearers would have understood that to include same-sex sexual activity as well as a whole host of other things. Um, And for me, if Jesus is saying that, knowing that that's the way his audience is going to receive it, then I either have to believe that Jesus did that by accident, that he didn't mean to communicate that to people. He was just like, oh, shucks, I didn't want them to take it that way, but they just took it that way. What a bummer. Um, (laughs) Or I need to believe that Jesus knew people would take it that way, even though that wasn't really what he was trying to say. And he was just like, oh, well, shucks, I guess it'll be fine if we go through 2000 years of people thinking that's not an option, but then they'll discover, you know, Um, or I could believe that Jesus genuinely knew people like me, that he, that he knew my, my experience of the world and that he quite precisely intended to speak to somebody in my shoes um, and to offer me some kind of guidance, some kind of wisdom for how I was called to, to steward my sexuality. Um, 
so so that, that I think is is one thing. Uh, the question of how we understand the way Jesus himself talks about the question. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really satisfied um, uh, either with Matthew's answer or with other answers that I've seen to that question on the on the side of the conversation that affirms same sex marriage. I think even more broadly, I would say um, that at their most persuasive for me, the arguments I heard that affirmed same-sex marriage seemed to be proving that the Bible was silent on the question, that they would go through various texts and they would say, look, this text that seems to talk about same-sex sexuality isn't actually talking about all forms of same-sex sexuality. Um, they would manage to kind of prove the Bible's silence on the question um, and then try to work from other abstract principles to, to build a, a different ethic. Um, and I was somewhat uh, emotionally unsatisfied with a Bible that was silent about me, um, which I, which maybe sounds like a very a very feeler way to respond to what should be a thinking argument. But but I thought to myself, is is the most encouraging thing that I can get this scriptural text to do to be to completely ignore the existence of somebody like me, or does it in fact seem more in keeping with the character of God? Um, to, to be quite aware uh, that I existed. Again, uh, this is kind of kind of a, a similar comment to my comments about Jesus and the term porneia. Um, it, it makes to me a lot more sense to say uh, that those things, uh, that the existence of people like me is in fact known and acknowledged in scripture in a way that gives me some kind of clear wisdom by which I ought to, to lead my life. Um, yeah. And then, and then third and finally, I'll say this, um, that I think some of the uh, some of the assumptions that I see um, about what singleness and celibacy mean, um, uh, and whether those things are viable options for followers of Jesus, um, right? This is one of the one of the the linchpins. I don't know if you can have multiple linchpins. Maybe that's not a thing. Maybe there's just supposed to be one. But one of the one of the key components, I think, of Matthew's argument in God and the Gay Christian. Um, is that because we know that uh, that single celibacy isn't really a particularly viable option, um, that we therefore need to uh, to grapple more greatly with these other options that are not celibate singleness, um, and I think. I'm much more inclined to see a hopeful vision forward for celibacy, not necessarily for singleness as we typically conceive of it in the 21st century, um, where people just get cordoned off into their own little isolated lives. Um, you know, I think I think we need to do a lot of work as a church community in recovering the various possible modes of life that might be fruitful and life-giving for single and celibate people. And I think that requires some creativity and some grit on, on all of our parts. Um, but I'm, I think I'm more optimistic about the project of celibacy um, than, than Matthew or some other folks who affirm same-sex marriage tend to be. Um, and maybe that's of necessity because I find myself feeling called to celibacy. And so, you know, th there's no sense in me hanging out here unless I truly do believe that it can be the good and beautiful thing to which I am called. Oh, yeah. And uh, in your book, you describe when you, when you talk to your pastor and you open up about all this of how you were smiling and he was like, why are you smiling? And it was one of those where like when you read it, it's, it's like, okay, 
but I'm watching him smile right now. And I'm like, oh, no, this this guy's genuinely just he's a happy guy. <laughs> it's true. I do aspire to happiness. Well, among other things, hopefully, hopefully a robust kind of happiness. Right. Not just happiness that responds to the individual moments as like, oh, life is good. Life is still good. But happiness that, that can actually coexist alongside very real sorrow and grief. Uh, and yet recognizes that there is something good and beautiful that sustains us through those things. Oh, yeah. All right. So is it possible for those who interpret the Bible differently over this topic to have Christianity with one another? Or should we just say that one side is decidedly unchristian? Ooh. Um, well, uh, so a, a couple a couple thoughts come, come to mind here. And, and one is, well— First of all, I would wonder when we talk about sides, I mean, we've talked about those who don't affirm same-sex marriage and those who do. Of course, when we when we initially, you know, we're discussing, we're also recognizing that there are people who would look at somebody like me and be like, wow, Coles is such a liberal progressive, you know? Um, <laughs> so I suppose maybe I should ask TJ in your question, are you mainly curious about the divide that exists between those of us who affirm same-sex marriage and those who don't? Um that, that particular divide, whether whether we need to you know draw the line of Christianity around that particular question? Yes. Okay. Here's what I would say. Um, I I am increasingly I'm increasingly leery of my own ability to look at anyone else and say categorically, ah, this person is inside the kingdom of heaven and this person is outside the kingdom of heaven. Um it seems to me that that impulse to assess the world in that way, to walk around telling people based on my checklist, you're in, you're out, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. And of course, eschatologically, are heaven and hell really the best terms to use here? That brings up a whole separate ball of wax that will, you know, I'm sure you guys will cover that on another episode. Um, but it seems to me that the Bible is not trying super duper hard to give us in every instance uh, incredibly clear guidelines about who's in and who's out, um, and so I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be quicker to make that judgment than it seems that Scripture has equipped me to be. Um, uh, sometimes people will ask me whether whether I think that same-sex marriage is a theological issue that Christians can agree to disagree about. And that framing has always struck me as perhaps a bit specious because it seems to assume that I have some power to determine whether or not other people agree with me, right? As if I'm allowed to say, like, you have permission to disagree with me, Josh. TJ, you have no permission to disagree, right? <laughs> and when the reality is, like, no one has come to me and said, Coles, may I have your permission to disagree with you? Like, people just go ahead and disagree. They, they just go for it. Um, and so the question that I am called to answer as a, as a follower of Jesus who recognizes that I too will, I'm sure, get, uh, get into the grand hereafter and discover that there are things that I have gotten wrong. Um, as my friend Deborah Hirsch says, um, when we, uh, like, if there's a theology test when we get to heaven, uh, like, none of us are scoring more than like 30% on that thing, you know? Um, <laughs> so, um, so it seems to me that. I would rather have a posture that says um, I want to be the kind of person who willingly points everyone I know, uh, encourages everybody 
closer in the direction of Jesus, invites people to consider the possibility that they might be wrong, and that includes myself, um, uh, to be to be constantly eager to be called to give up yet more for Jesus than we have uh, dared to imagine. Um, uh, and I am I feel I feel as comfortable taking that posture with uh, friends who differ with me on questions around same-sex marriage as I do uh, with friends who uh, come from, say, Catholic or Orthodox traditions rather than Protestant ones who, you know, we have we have some really significant disagreements. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I could raise all kinds of issues um, uh, that I'm sure would give us, again, a bajillion hot button, hot button things to discuss. I've been hanging out with a lot of LDS folks since I moved to Idaho, and it's just fascinating to me talking with LDS folks about Jesus. Um, uh, again, my my intention here is not to draw some kind of false equivalency between any of these theological differences. Um, uh, but I think, I think what I want to do is resist the impulse to draw a really tidy delineation and say, these people are in and these people are out because I want to recognize both that there are people who my heart will look at and want to say, I think you should be out. Um, who, who God may say like, no, 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 you're not the boss, Coles, like they're in. Um, and there may be people who are so closely theologically aligned with me um, who yet don't actually know, they are not actually known by the person of Jesus. Um, and so I would, I would rather try to cultivate a life in which I invite everybody I know, including myself, um, to, to keep revisiting that question and to keep seeking to fall more deeply in love with the person of Jesus. All right. So Josh, uh, tier two or tier three? I got to say tier two. <laughs> I got to say tier two because I can't imagine actively disagreeing and being in the same church. Um, but I could be wrong. You know, I, I feel like it might be very difficult for someone who is adamantly on the more traditional orthodox side, as all of us here are, and saying, hey, maybe doing this is a sin or, you know, acting on this is a sin, however you want to word it. Someone who feels very adamant about that, going to church with someone who is in a same sex marriage, I could see that being challenging to worship together. Um but, you know, like Cole said, we have to have room to disagree with one another. I don't know. I don't know how that would fit in the same worship service. I'm mm -hmm. interested. Right. And if you uh, if oh, you go ahead. Oh, um, no, I, di I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was just going to say um, perhaps an interesting corollary would be to consider how we treat some other questions around sexual ethics. Um, so for instance, um, I. When, when Jesus describes remarriage after m most divorces as being moiheia, as being adultery, um, I'm inclined to, to take a pretty serious reading of that text. Um, and I, I have long worshipped among plenty of Protestants who do not. Um, so I'm quite accustomed to worshipping yeah. with people whose remarriages I would consider to be ongoing sexual sin. Um, uh, and... I would say for better or worse, the, the Protestant uh, experiences that I have uh, waltzed within 
have made me accustomed to that kind of experience. Interestingly enough, uh, TJ and I know someone who was a overseer in our denomination. And when we changed our mind about that issue where they no longer consider that sin or they will conduct marriages for people who are getting remarried, um, he stepped down from the position, is still part of the church and a leader in the church, just not in that high of a position because mm. he didn't feel right with that. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. The the other thing I would want to note um, is, and again, this is why this is why I asked up front, TJ, whether the conversation we were having about where the line should be drawn was, uh, you know, on the on the same sex marriage versus no same sex marriage side or uh, somewhere else. And it's because I know of voices um, again, voices who would consider me sort of dangerously progressive, um, who in their drawing of of the boundaries of orthodoxy. Um, they even draw on the boundaries in a place that says that I am I am outside of those boundaries. And and this is maybe why I try to avoid the term orthodox as a characterization of uh, theological views that fall outside of the creeds, because it seems to me that orthodox is referring to the creeds um, and, and to insert new information into the creeds. Maybe some people feel qualified to do that. That just feels like a, a, a bit of an overreach for somebody in my uh, admittedly, admittedly not authoritative shoes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always interesting to, to assess the question of who I think should be in and out with the recognition that there are other people who would already perceive me as being out. Um, and, and, uh, we, we mentioned Jackie Hill Perry earlier, who I think, uh, um, oh, yeah. Even so, so Jackie, to, to my knowledge, I mean, she didn't inform me when we were last together. To my knowledge, Jackie would not understand me as being outside of the outside of the kingdom of God. Um, and in fact, um, I think, uh, yeah, though, though there was a time when she was using sort of more ex-gay language in sharing her testimony. Um, my understanding is that that's less the language that she's using now. Um, and she would continue to acknowledge an experience of. Uh, attraction to the same sex um, as 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 uh, a pattern, she would say a, a sin struggle that she that she wrestles against, I think, would be kind of the language she would put around that. Um, so, uh, again, you know, Jackie and I are in somewhat different places, but also um, we are somewhat closer together um, in some ways uh, than than, say, the person who would say. Uh, that you must you must be sort of purged of any experience of attraction to the same sex in order to follow Jesus, or even somebody who would say uh, you don't have to stop being attracted to the same sex, but you need to stop using terminology like gay. Um, uh, and if you use terminology like gay, that's an indicator that you are not orthodox, that you are outside the the, the bounds of of. Uh, the true kingdom of heaven, which again is an is an argument that's being made uh, currently about folks like myself. Yeah, I I just use orthodox. I, I find that typically people know what I mean. Um, I do find it a lot of the times can be confusing in certain contexts, like what you're talking about there, or when you're talking to a group of people that include people from the orthodox branch of Christianity. I mean, you know, it's it can be a confusing term. So anyway, uh, just moving right along past that uh, in your book, uh, you come to the conclusion that every orientation is corrupted. Um, every person's corrupted and everyone's called to suffer or carry our cross. 
Um, I think it's pretty clear where you get that in the Bible because, you know, carry across is a, it's a phrase in there. Um, it made me think of sort of the more modern idea that some people use these days of like Christian hedonism, um, that the, that God's purpose for his glory and our deepest desires for our own pleasure are one and the same. What would be your take on an idea like Christian hedonism? I think the idea of Christian hedonism, it seems to me, could be applied really well and understood really wisely, or it could be applied really dangerously and understood very unwisely. Um, I uh, So I think the term Christian hedonism, if I recall correctly, comes from John Piper. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And though I would have uh, some theological differences from Piper, uh, some of which he or I or both of us may perceive as being somewhat significant, um, I, I think a lot of good things about Piper, and I'm inclined to read charitably what he seems to be up to uh, in in sort of outlining that idea. Um, I think understood well, Christian hedonism points us back to again, to, to that idea that, that we were talking about at the, at the very beginning of this conversation um, that we see in, in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18, this idea that the, that the pathway to our best kind of flourishing, um, the pathway to a hundredfold more than all the best things that we thought we wanted comes in this, in this strange and counterintuitive way of following Jesus. Um, and so it seems to me that uh, that the the argument of Piper understood well and wisely is to say, if you really want to be happy, if you truly want the hedonism of knowing that you are living your best life, um, you're going to get there by way of following Jesus. You're going to get there by way of a cross. You're going to get there by way of dying to yourself and recognizing that now you no longer live, but Christ lives in you, that that will actually be the place where your best happiness is found. Where I think that idea goes awry, and where I think I worry that it often goes awry for 21st century Western evangelical mm-hmm. Christians, is that I think a lot of us are tempted to hear an idea like that and to try to subvert the process a bit to say, well, God, I know that you want my happiness and my flourishing. Therefore, I'm going to save you the trouble and I'm going to do the logic for you (laughs) and inform you what my best life will be. And then you can help me get there. Um, Isn't that kind of me, God, to have done that work for you? Uh, It seems to me that that temptation exists for all of us um, to try to get the glittering accessories of resurrection and just skip all that pesky death along the way. Well, that's why God gave uh, TJ Elden Ring when he asked for it. You know, (laughs) it's true. I waited for years. (laughs) <laughs> anyway so uh, what led you to decide your story needed to be written down in a book uh wh- you know where other people can find you where can other people find your book there's a truism that suggests that people tend to write the books that they feel like they needed when they were younger uh. i think for me, as I started writing down some of my story, which I did initially without any thought that I was creating a thing to be published, as I was writing it down, and especially as I was reflecting on experiences from earlier parts of my life um, and on the ways that I wrestled with the question of whether or not 
I was known by God, whether or not it was possible for me to love God. Um, I found myself wishing that young Greg had had more examples that he could look to and say, oh, this experience does not in any way disqualify me from being a disciple of Jesus. There is actually a hopeful and beautiful path forward for me. Um, I first started encountering a couple stories like that, just one or two probably that I was aware of um, around the time I finished college. Um, And even then, so this was a few years later that I started writing my own story. And I thought, you know, there there are a couple books out there, but it still feels like such this rare and bizarre thing. And maybe it's not such a bad thing for there to be a few more models in the world, um, a few more people being open enough that the future young Gregs who show up and wonder, hey, is it possible for me to, to love Jesus within the, the experience of the world that I have, to, to have there be people that they could encounter uh, who could who could model for them an affirmative answer to that question that, yes, there is indeed a way for you to follow Jesus. And I'm leery, even as I say the word model, um, I'm leery of the notion that people might perceive me as some kind of grand role model, um, that people might think of me as as the, the resplendent being who we should put on a pedestal and tell everybody else they should be like Greg. Um, uh, which I have, I have no desire to be. I don't really think it's healthy for any human being to, <laughs> to find themselves in that place. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be anybody's role model, but I think, I think what I want is to be part of a world, to be part of helping us move toward a world in which people of all kinds are able to openly acknowledge the experiences that they have around sexuality and sexual attraction, um, even around uh, gender identity and gender dysphoria, though those are not things that we've been talking about today. Those uh, That's not particularly part of my experience to, to wrestle with gender identity. Um, uh, and yet, you know, I think uh, I, I would like to be part of a world where there's more space for all kinds of people with non-normative experiences of sexuality and gender to, to acknowledge those things and to know that they are loved by and welcome within uh, the community of followers of Jesus, uh, that there's a way in which they uniquely can have the privilege of being a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and um, one, th- one thing that I really like that C.S. Lewis does, I always have to bring up C.S. Lewis. Um, <laughs> he likes to use humor as example to point what we're most comfortable with and what there is a reason for that kind of things. And what I, what I find very telling in this situation is even amongst your church crowd, if you joke about wanting to kill someone, okay, sure. That's normal. If you joke about wanting this, nope, that is not an okay joke. It's very telling that we draw the line there. Like that's, I think regardless of where you come on orientation, all of this, that is a problem that the church needs to look at. Um, also, going back really quickly to the uh, Christian hedonism thing, I just want to let you know, Mr. Piper, because we all know you listen to this. Um, I agree with Greg. Uh, I think it can be a helpful term, but also can be dangerous. I wish you would have gave it a different term. I think that was one of those uh, catch them terms, you know, where people click because of the term. Uh, and if you would like to debate me on that, please go to email us at theholechurch@gmail.com, and we'll have you on, Piper. I have no problem with that. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, that uh, that truism really is just uh, worrying to me because uh, someone needs to check on Stephen King immediately. <laughs> if he needed any of those books growing up. <laughs> he desperately needed any of those at cemetery. 80 odd books. That is terrifying. Oh, man. I guess it depends on the type of type of book you're reading. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, so one, one thing we like to do, um, we like to ask all our guests at the end of the show, if you could just give us a single tangible action that you think would help maintain unity in the church today, um, what one action would you tell our listeners to do or to take? I, with respect to, I mean, there are all kinds of things I want to tell you to do if you're listening, all kinds, if I have that power. But with, <laughs> res, with respect to, to this particular conversation that we're having, I think one thing I would say is um, find somebody you disagree with, um, or somebody who has a different experience than you. Um, uh, if you're not LGBTQ, find somebody who is maybe, um, and sit down with them, not, not to have a conversation, not to share your view, um, literally just to say, Hey, can I, can I hear your story? I would love to understand what you've experienced, what you think, how you've gotten to where you've gotten to in this conversation. Um, and, and I would, I would urge you both to, uh, to say up front and then to actually live out in the way you do that. Um, uh, not, not to give any commentary of your own, not, not to respond, not to go in with a desire to have sort of a, a back and forth dialogue, just simply shut your mouth and listen long enough to hear where somebody you disagree with is coming from. Uh, because it seems to me, um, that at least some of our disagreement and at least some of our lack of unity is sometimes, uh, rooted in, uh, a, a misunderstanding of, of what people are actually saying, of what people are actually experiencing. Um, and there might be, there might be hope for better things ahead. Uh, if we could be quiet long enough to hear one another really well, um, even in places where we're scared to hear them. Yeah. So what I'll do you add to that, uh, for those advanced listeners, uh, after you do that, also read all three books, God and the gay Christian, single gay Christian and gay girl, good God. Yeah, just, you know, advanced listeners only. Yeah. You know, a lot of people listen to podcasts because they don't like to read. There's audiobooks. That's also not reading. Of all three of those. So that would help. Uh, But what do you think we would see change in the world if everyone did that? It's the most fun part of the question. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I've I've been reading a lot and observing a lot recently uh, the the increasing polarization of the world. Uh, Twitter today after the uh, Roe versus Wade leak uh, last night. This will tell you whenever this podcast airs. Now you know when we recorded it. Um, <laughs> uh, it it's not so much that I it's not so much that I am shocked or, or worried or anything by people having opinions on on both sides of of these questions. Um, the the thing that the thing that sometimes I think worries me more than uh, more than the conversation themselves is our tendency to engage from a place of uh, increasingly dichotomous camps that refuse to even speak one another's language that insist on always defining the debate on their terms always talking in their ways um, 
in such a way that the conversation ends up happening in these somewhat distinct silos. Um, and so if you have the pleasure of being friends with lots of people who exist in both of those silos, you get to watch these two very different siloed conversations happen simultaneously. And it seems to me that in seeking to hear one another across difference, one thing that we do is foster an ability to speak in translation, if you will, uh, to understand the different kinds of language that people with different positions will put around their views. Um, and I think the more we can, the more we can hear one another's language and speak in translation with one another, um, the more we might be able to foster something more like a constructive dialogue, as opposed to just kind of a, a you know two siloed camps slinging uh, slinging mud and. Uh, feces and such at one another. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I found that most of my debates and conversations where we're both using the same language are usually a little bit more productive. Mm -hmm. We hate tribalism. Tribalism bad. Uh, so before we get into our outro, uh, we always like to do uh, one little thing. We like to call it a God moment segment. It's just where we take a minute to share what God's been up to with us recently, whether it's a blessing, a challenge, moment of worship, any of those things. I always make Josh go first. Uh, to give everyone else enough time to think of a good one. Yeah. Uh, so last weekend, I finished finals. I went to a dirt race. I went to a night baseball game. And um, I planted some grass. I had a very productive and a very enjoyable weekend with a mac and cheese hot dog involved. Fantastic. Um, and I just feel very blessed. You know, it was a, it was a good weekend. Cool. Uh, did you go to that dirt track like... In between our houses. In Gastonia. Oh, no, 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 you didn't. We not. should go to that All right. one day. <laughs> uh, so I'll go next. Uh, my God moment is uh, if you're not active enough on Twitter to understand the timestamp of uh, the Roe Wade leak, uh, you probably won't understand this either. The playoffs, the NHL playoffs started last night. <laughs> and the Hurricanes oh, beat man. the Bruins in game one. Soundly, very good day. I don't even Praise think you God. needed to say the rest. You just said the NHL playoff started. Anyone who's been listening for any length of time knows what a blessing that is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right, Greg, uh, what's God been up to with you lately, man? Well, this is going to start off at maybe sounding like a downer, but I think I think in the end it will be good news. Um so I've, I've been sick of late and, and perhaps, perhaps you can hear it in my voice or maybe you were just like, I assumed your voice always sounds like that, Coles. Um, but yes, I've been sick and I'm not sure exactly what it is. I got tested for COVID and that was negative. And then I ended up getting tested for strep throat because the symptoms seemed like that, but that was also negative. So here we are. And I'm just kind of like, not exactly sure what I'm sick with and feeling on the whole, not, I mean, to use a technical medical term, feeling a bit crappy. Um, yeah. But there is, I, I often find in sickness that there's, there's this incredible grace in being, being stripped of your capacity to perform well and do all the things that you want to do um, and feel like you're, you're in charge of the world, uh, to recognize your own limitedness um, and to recognize the beauty of knowing that you continue to have equal value um, even if you're not able to accomplish.
things on behalf of God, um, that, that you have equal value, um, even if you are not owning life in the way that you intended to. Um, and so I think uh, as many of my sicknesses have been, um, yeah, I think, I think the last uh, few days, several days now, uh, have been for me a, a glorious return to that perennial truth. Mm, awesome. Amen. Good stuff. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or an enemy. You always have that choice. Uh, you can also share it with a cousin. Yeah, Tons of which options. Is preferable. Uh, share it with at least one person, please. Yeah. That would help us a lot. Yeah. And uh, if you like hearing uh, TJ and my voice, uh, you can always hear more of us. You can hear talk about geeky stuff and, um, you know, how that kind of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings kind of things relates back to theology and God at systematicgeekology.org where we have our other podcast there. All right, and remember, you can leave us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast or a one-star rating. Those both help us a whole lot in different ways. And thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we'll be interviewing Dr. Sam Rayner, the president of Church Answers. Coming up after that, we'll have a continuation of our Divided Scriptures series and an interview with beloved return guest, Dr. Trimper Longman III. At the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. He doesn't know it, though. Right. Everybody else knows. Everyone else knows. Uh, hopefully he doesn't. Yeah, Francis needs to catch up. <laughs> Unless he just really wants a long season one. I think he does. Yeah. So we'll see. Whenever he decides. Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Please come back next week to hear our interview with Dr. Sam Rainey of Church Answers, featuring guest host Brandon Knight. Again, remember, you can sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast for as little as $3 a month. Thank you so much.